0: Hi, and welcome to Democracy, the podcast that shines light on some of the darkest challenges facing the fight for democracy around the globe. Democracy will and must prevail. This podcast is brought to you by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening, direct from Washington, DC, with support from our friends at the United States Agency for International Development through the Global Elections and Political Transitions Award. I'm your host, Adrian Ross. It's been twenty-five years since Guatemala's Civil War came to an end. But since then, in this land of spectacular beaches, volcanoes, and ancient Mayan ruins, democracy has been challenged. Ahead in this second episode, Navigating the Northern Triangle, we'll hear from the former second vice president of Guatemala's Congress, Nanette Montenegro talks about what she endured during the country's darkest days and what, serving more than 20 years in Congress, has taught her about democracy. But first, we can't talk about Central America without taking a look at immigration. Alex Lawson has more.
1: Irregular migration is not just a problem in the Western Hemisphere. It is a global crisis that causes health, economic, security, and citizenship issues everywhere, But even further south than the southern U.S. border that people often think of for border issues, there are a couple of tiny towns that exist between Mexico and Guatemala where migration traffic has hit record numbers. The trail of migrants that come through these towns includes thousands of individuals who have been returned to their home country via planes and buses after failed attempts to reach the U.S. and Mexico. So far this year, more than 15,000 migrants have been sent from Mexico to the tiny jungle town of El Cebo in Guatemala. Meanwhile, in Guatemala City, the Congressional Migration Committee has been working to improve oversight of all the Guatemalan institutions which touch migration issues.
0: Those members of Guatemala's Congressional Migrants Committee have been getting steady support from one of the consortium's partners. Today, we're joined by the country director from the International Republican Institute, Bernardo Rico, and his colleague, Julia Maria Rodriguez, who is the program manager on this team. They are both here now, direct from Guatemala with more. You have recently returned from the border town of El Cibo in Guatemala to see the facilities and talk with migrants and officials there. Tell us more about your trip. Who was with you? What did you find? And most importantly, why did you go there in the first place?
2: Essentially, we went there to evaluate, to see how the returnee migrants are being treated at that particular border point. What had been happening was um, up until recently, even that border point in particular was um, an informal one. So it had only recently been made formal crossing point, both out of Guatemala and back into Guatemala. It's in a very remote part of the Paten jungle. There's virtually no infrastructure No electricity was there up until recently, until they put in a diesel-driven generator by the Guatemalan government. It's pretty much no man's land. And what had been happening was, starting sometime in mid-August, a lot of returning migrants um, that were being returned from the United States and from Mexico were just being left on the Guatemalan side of the border with literally no help at all from the Guatemalan authorities or others.
3: We accompanied the members of the Migrants Committee of the Western Hawaiian Congress to the jungle, actually, like Bernardo said, to unstable border. The president and secretary of the committee joined us as well as members from the committee that represent target municipalities due to their higher percentage of their irregular migration, mostly located in
0: the Western Highlands country. You both talk a little bit about working with the Guatemalan members of the migrant committee. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about how your work led up to accompanying them to the border? Basically, we've been supporting this commission to
3: address the main or key issues that have been uh, raised from and expressed from Guatemalan um, migrants in the U.S. in the U.S. and Mexico, Mexico, and here in the country. Those topics are related to the proposal of reform to the National Council for Migrants. We supported the committee last year, since the new uh, authorities of Conamiwa were elected, and we provided all the platforms and all the mechanisms for this process to be seen, you know, and to be followed by, by the migrants in the U.S., but the Guatemalan migrants in the U.S., and Mexico, and in the, the Western Highlands. If where we have most of our migrant citizens, there was a need to oversee what was going on, if there were protocols to attend the migrants, if the government institutions have presence.
0: So what did you conclude from your own evaluations of the situation? And what additional steps do you think the government of Guatemala should be taking to help migrants return to the country?
2: Obviously, the acute crisis is how to address and treat the returning migrants. And one of the um, immediate first measures that was taken by uh, the Mexican and Honduran government and financed by the Mexican government was to put these migrants on buses that were actually very clean and well-kept and whatnot to return them most of them uh, to Honduras. Part of the challenge that we saw there, um, and again, that day we were there, you know, there was a lot of uh, military and national police security. So we probably saw a little more unorderly process than is normally in the case. So they would be processed. They would have to kind of get off the bus on the, on the Mexican side, walk across the border, get back on the bus after it was sanitized. Basically, many of them were disoriented, didn't, you know, know where they were headed. So they had little choice other than to get on that bus and be driven to the border of Honduras. What we found out later talking to some of the UNHCR officials is that many of those Salvadorians asked to be dropped off somewhere, you know, in the middle of Guatemala, so they could ideally make a, a return trip back to El Salvador. One of the main challenges, even for attending the returnees is, is having any Guatemalan institution work efficiently by itself. And I think the challenge to even work together is even greater. Hopefully it'll happen. And, and I don't really want to be critical but it really serves us to just look at how Guatemala has been really the laggard in all of Latin America and rolling out the vaccine. Actually a country like Honduras is doing better than, than Guatemala else. El Salvador actually, despite the kind of the challenges with, with that president, their vaccination levels are approaching that of the United States. And this is even more the case in, in Honduras. When some of these officials are corrupt themselves and, Involved in corruption schemes, you know, the most famous being La Línea from former president Otto Pérez Melino, which had to do with customs. And I'd probably say just to kind of emphasize what I think is the worst issue or the worst challenge in terms of building stronger, more resilient, transparent democratic institutions and the kind of corruption that gets in the way is that corruption that stems from organized crime and narco trafficking. Not everyone wants to talk about it. But it is probably the major issue in, in these two countries where 90% of the cocaine that goes to the United States touches Honduras and about 75% of that touches Guatemala. I guess to put it also in the context of just how grave the situation is for any of these people who make this journey north to try to find a better life. And when I talk about those issues and the challenges they face, it's hard to kind of argue with them that there's not a good reason for them to actually make the trek north, yes. although it's dangerous. You know, it really requires an approach by, by all governments, you know, starting with Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Mexico, and of course, the United States. We talk about, you know, shared responsibility, but I think more needs to be done and less needs to be said.
0: But it is super complicated and it, it's hard.
2: One of the many things that I think is always useful to remind ourselves is, is each of these three countries is very different. So, you know, the factors driving the out-migration from them are often different. I would say, you know, the lack of economic opportunity, particularly in a place like Honduras, along with the lack of rule of law, a very corrupted government. You take a country like Guatemala, and I think, you know, there are certain areas in, in the Altiplano or the Northwest Highlands of Guatemala where there is, um, is, I'd say, a lot of help migration. A lot of it being driven by I'd say there more not so much a lack of security, but more lack of economic opportunity. Climate change driving you know, just how, the ability to you know, sustain crops and, and livelihoods, you know, addressing the root causes in all three of these countries are something worthwhile endeavors um, in and of themselves or something that needs to happen. That's you know, why people like Julia Maria and I are passionate about working in development and have, and have worked in development. That said, many of these issues that drive out migration are outside of Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala's control. There are changes in U.S. policies. Policies that are more draconian, that maybe limit migration policies that may see appear on the surface more appealing for migrants to actually give the impression that they can get in that drive migration. There are two other kind of contentious issues that I think are, are worth also addressing when it comes to migration. That some people talk about at least the first one, and that is um, the remittances they provide. So all of those hardworking Guatemalans, El Salvadorans, and Hondurans who live in in the United States and other countries, in Spain, elsewhere, actually provide some of the, you know, the largest amount of export dollars back to their countries by way of remittances. And then lastly, if you put yourself in the position of any one of these governments, often and out migration, not only does it provide, you know, export revenue, but it provides a kind of a, it's a release. It's a pressure valve release for those who actually need to or feel the need to leave.
0: Do you think that it's possible we could see a more comprehensive approach from the Guatemalan government to help these migrants?
3: Yes. In the long term, I do see uh, the Guatemalan government coordinating an action plan to provide assistance to the, to the Guatemalan migrants into the Guatemalan returnees. Definitely, there are key institutions that are doing their best to coordinate efforts to provide assistance to create economic programs to truly develop uh, returnees' capacities to have better opportunities here in the country. Also, from the Congress, there are strong actions being taken from the migrants' community, not just to oversee what the government is doing, but also to promote initiative laws that are oriented to help economic reactivation to promote stronger democratic institutions, to promote transparency. But I I do want to emphasize this is a
0: long-term journey, and I do see our country going this way. Do you see a chance for Guatemala to help Guatemalans in the future?
2: Your average citizen is very much interested in helping their, their fellow man and woman, right? There are some good actors in, um, and well-intended in individuals in politics in the Congress and even you know the executive branch and the judicial branch who want to help Guatemala it's just a question of how do you really help Guatemalan institutions to kind of become more effective and efficient and transparent to kind of address these types of problems I think the will is there to at least attend this particular crisis of returnees and it's probably like a a good opportunity for the Guatemalan well government going to one of your original questions, if showing, you know, at least having the opportunity to show if they can work together to solve this particular problem of returnees and treating, you know, making sure they're tr- that they're treated well and fairly, humanely, but addressing the issues of out migration, you know, the root causes, which, which, I, which I've discussed at length already, as Juli Maria said, and I, and I like to say it's a, it's a multi generational endeavor.
0: Did you talk to any individuals? Could you tell us a personal story? We weren't able to interact that much with them. However, we
3: did see some sad faces. Okay. They were really sad. They were really worried. They had no money, no house. They didn't know what their destination would be. The buses took the, retru- the migrant returnees to the to the border between Guatemala and Honduras, but there were like many Salvadorians in those buses bolse- and they didn't know how to get to their countries, you know. One of the biggest results of our visit to Exebo border is that the Migrant Committee coordinated a technical roundtable, which includes all the authorities that are related to the migrant issues, to the migration issues, sorry. The migrant Committee asked for an action plan to the um, yeah. Guatemala Guamiamigua, hey. who is the, which is the institution in charge of you know providing assistance to the migrant returnees. since there was no action plan since there is no infrastructure infrastructure. So I think this is asking for this uh, action plan is the beginning
0: of a long journey. But at least the first step has been done. What is the number one thing people should know about migrants in general or Guatemalans specifically? I think Guatemalan
3: citizens, especially the migrants, are looking for a better future, a brighter future for them and for their families. If you ask them if they do want to go to the United States, migrate to the United States, they, they really don't. But that's the only opportunity they see. To uh, help their communities, to help their families and to, have, uh, and to have better economic opportunities. They are hardworking people, they are committed people, they have principles and values. They are very kind people. I think we should all, all learn that um, migration is a right, and we all have that, and we' all have that right to migrate and we should treat what the Malans. Hondurans and Salvador- Salvadorans as in, as individuals with rights and with dreams, and that's what they are doing.
2: My request would be somehow for this discussion to move beyond the, or at least the understanding of what's going on, move beyond the international development professionals, you know, the U.S. embassy, other embassies, U.S. Congress. To United States citizens, to really try to understand why people decide to migrate, what is actually happening to them. So, the question is, how are we going to approach it without politicizing it in the United States? And, you know, a regular migration looks somewhat different in terms of it's actually people and, you know, human lives that are being put at risk to actually try to find a better livelihood. But that issue is not going away, nor is the issue of illegal drug trafficking.
0: Bernardo Rico, Julio Maria Rarias and Guatemala, thank you so much for being here today. With more now on the day-to-day democracy in Guatemala, former Guatemala congressman and leading human rights activist Nunette Montenegro joins me from her home in Guatemala City. Ninette survived some of the darkest days in Central America. In 1984, her husband was shot and snatched by government security forces off the streets in Guatemala City. His case became one of the estimated 40,000 people disappeared during Guatemala's conflict, victims of the government's deliberate policy of terror. Ninette responded to the shock by creating one of the country's best-known human rights groups, eventually introducing her own political party and serving many years in Congress. She's here now to share a candid assessment of Guatemala's corruption and much more. Thanks to Maria Olga Escobar for helping us out with the English. For those who don't know much about Guatemala's darker days, can you talk a little bit about what life was like then?
2: In años, los años ochentas, difícil poderlo explicar
3: no había estado de derecho había and there ausencia were de garantías.
4: In which we, y ante la it ausencia was de... very difficult not only for freedom of expression but also the freedom to move around every part of the country the situation was very very delicate there was no political participation of opposition parties until the year 1985 when the first transition to democracy took place i say first because even if it was civil government, we were in the middle of an armed conflict. And during this first civil government force, disappearance, and murders continued. There was a very iconic case of 12 students who in 1989 were detained, later disappeared, and they were cruelly murdered. This is the complex
0: in which we were living at that time. What did it feel like to live in a situation like that? It was the 80s at that time in Guatemala.
4: It was really sca- scary for me. What happened to me was that my first husband was kidnapped. And for me, that was uh, the horrible thing that happened to me. And that is the time when I decided to go to the street. So for us, it was very dangerous, very hard, because we were demanding justice, but this corrupt, structure was within the state of Guatemala.
0: So for me, it was really dangerous, and that changed my life completely. It changed your life completely, and you served in so many different capacities for Guatemala. And yet, if we fast forward to, to 2021, Congress still doesn't have a gender quota for women in Congress. How do you think representation for women in the congressional government is for Guatemala today.
4: I see that more from a quota of power, we are suggesting clarity in the process. Actually, right now we represent 51% of the whole population in Guatemala. So, for us as women, it's very important to participate in the, in the decision-making process. We know, and as you all know, women receive more pressure of doing the work better. And be more qualified and to be involved in political processes. So it is for us very important to strengthen their knowledge, their capacity, their empowerment, so they can apply to these jobs, but they can do it technically and efficiently as well. So mm-hmm. right now, a uh, power of fora is not our goal; it's more parity. And me, I enter, I finished my work in Congress two years ago. And I think the involvement of women in the political process has improved. Now we see in the ministries that women are participating more and more, but
0: still we have a lot to go
4: as well as we live
0: in this process. The current Guatemala president's administration has been the target of a lot of criticism and protests. Most recently, the Attorney General ousted Guatemala's top anti-corruption prosecutor, which landed him on the United States corrupt and undemocratic list. You yourself have been a longtime fighter for transparency and anti-corrupt practices. What do you make of the streak of corruption we see throughout the administration right now? Today, once elected, the Board of Directors at the Congress
4: And it's the same pattern as the other board of directors in the Congress that are corrupt. It just represents how weak the institutions are and how the lack of governance that we have in Guatemala. So for us that is very that's very helpful to the country. Also I want to state that today the Guatemalan society has a lot of fear. Uh, they don't go out in the streets because they are really fearful of what can happen. The pandemic COVID affected a lot of the man society. The economy dropped. Today, the society is more interested in restore their neighbor and restore all the things that they have to manage as families in the society rather than go to the streets and create the government, the institutions, and also to fight for combating corruption. So for, for us, it's very dominating to the democratic process of Guatemala. Also, I think we're living dramatic moments in Guatemala in which the state has been captured, but this is not something new. It is a process that comes from many years ago, even during the armed conflict and mafia linked to organized crime. Was created, but today, I think there is a more direct participation of mafia and organized groups that finance political campaigns and even not only finance political campaigns, but also have a direct participation in some elected office. At this moment, the people are now on the edge, and when people are on the edge, they are apathic. Obviously, no matter how much the situation is hidden, this is not going to change. And it's very possible
0: that this is how. We will end this government. How do you see the problems of corruption contributing to the mass immigration we see leaving Guatemala? I believe that corruption affects the whole country in every way. And when state
4: money is not used in a sustained public policies to combat poverty, inequality, nutrition, or for entrepreneurship, when citizens of a country do not find options and leave their country for lack of, of opportunities. About three million Guatemalans live abroad, especially in the United States, and now the insidos of Guatemalans have grown so much that the largest number of people leaving the country are women and children teen and teen years old. And precisely because the most vulnerable population is the one that suffers from the lack of opportunities that the state does not provide. There are more than 2 million school-aid children outside the school system and 1.9 million preschool children also outside the educational system. And it's believed that there are around more than 4 million children and adolescents suffering from poverty and extreme poverty. This problem is multi-dimensional.
0: Do you think that the Guatemala government should be doing more to help people who are fleeing the country?
4: The migration crisis is a state crisis and it affects our national security as well as the state. The role of the famous coyote in these countries, the coyote is for one people and for many of the population is very love the, the person of the coyote, because they will provide this opportunity to leave the country and to be in the United States. But also, right now, the coyote has been linked to the criminal structures, to the gangs, to the drug dealers. So right now, that is a very dangerous situation that is affecting children, women, and youth. The coyote will charge each of women, men, or adolescents that is leaving to the United States around $1,000 to go to the United States. That price. Is very expensive for a country that is living in poverty. If that person will return to Guatemala being deported, they have invested this money in the coyote. They have no home, no work. So the, the pay that they have to give to the coyote in order to stay in Guatemala, sometimes it will be his or her life. It is the state together with the private initiative and sectors of society who have to look for solution, for me, this being fighting corruption, training people to learn to demand accountability from their leaders, learning to be a social addict for the good use of resources, especially at the local level, where many mayor's offices do not have a unit for access to information. With respect to the coyote, this is a big problem. Because just as many people love, yes, love the Coyote because they knew them to the United States, there are also some Coyotes that have already been discovered to have links with drug trafficking and organized crime on the borders, where in exchange of being allowed to continue operating, they they hand over people for those who to use, the poor people who are fleeing the country end up being used to transport drugs or contraband, and they are even kidnapped. Another important point is that the coyote has reached a point where he charges more than $10,000. People get into debt with banks, loan shares, and sell their properties. If they manage to get to the United States, they obviously pay the debt after many maybe are but there, but if they do not get there, They are forced to pay when even people are killed because of the debt.
0: That is a very dangerous situation for our country. What is your greatest hope for the future of Guatemala? My greatest hope is that one day
4: we will go from being sleeping citizens to being citizens in the whole exercise of our own rights with comprehensive security, food security, job security, security, and entrepreneurship and obviously personal security, justice, equality, equity, however, to be able to be a citizen in the first necessary to eradicate poverty. That people have access to education and having access to education gives them better opportunities for the future and those better opportunities for the future gives the opportunity to satisfy their basic needs. And when they are satisfied, they can already exercise their citizenship. It seems impossible given the current situation, but I believe that we can start with more or less the 30% that represents the middle class, which can exercise its citizenship and start fighting against corruption and impunity through the supervision of how the budget is executed, demanding accountability and training other people until the population is empowered to understand that public money comes from the taxes of the citizens. I believe that there is already a group of people to start training those people who live in remote places so that they can exercise their true citizenship that will really improve the conditions of the country and at least in 10 years eradicate extreme poverty and later on poverty. Accountability is the only tool that we help us, a tool against corruption, to empower us as citizens. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you joining us today. Coming up on the next episode of Democracy, the podcast, it's what every independent nation wants. Democratic resilience. Find out what it takes to get a country like Sudan started on the path to prosperity and lasting independence. Then stick around. NDI's president, Ambassador Derek Mitchell, shares his personal stories from the front lines in the fight for democracy, from Tiananmen Square to a Golden Lake era in Burma. You won't want to miss it. That's all ahead on our next episode of Democracy, the podcast. This podcast has been produced by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening through the Global Elections and Political Transitions Award and is made possible by the generous support of the American people through the United States Agency for International Development. Opinions expressed here are those of the hosts and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of USAID or the U.S. government, and is produced by Avotera and Simpler Media. For more information on Democracy, the podcast, and to access the complete archives, please visit www.seps.org forward slash podcast.